Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, if you've got your Bibles today, I would ask and encourage you to get them open back to the book of Romans, because today we are going to be continuing our series, What He's Done, and our study of the book of Romans. And I'm really excited about it because over and over in this study, we have had the opportunity uh, as we've gone through it, we've been in the book of Romans, you guys. Do y'all remember when we started this? It was like last August, last September, right? We've been in the book of Romans for a long time and I continue to hear what a sweet gift it's been in the life of our, our church family. But we've been able to talk again and again and again about the good news of the gospel. And of course, when we've been talking about the gospel, what we've been talking about is this good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save all who trust in him. That's why we call the series What He's Done, because the hope for you, hope for me, is not that we will ever do enough, not that we'll ever be enough, but that God is a God who is a saving God. And God is a God who has done everything needed from start to finish, everything needed to put you back right with him. He's done it all. And the book of Romans proclaims the good news of God, who he is. It's not about who you are, it's about who he is. The hope for your life is not about you ever becoming a great enough person, it's about God being a great enough God. And it's not about you ever doing enough, it's about God who in his love for you and in his grace as a gift for you has done everything needed to put you back into relationship with him, which is what you and I need the most. So Paul celebrates all through the book the good news of the gospel. Now, it's been a few weeks because we've been in Easter season and I gave y'all a break from the memory verses, okay? But now is the time to put your mind to the test, all right? Our memory verses for this series come from the first chapter of the book of Romans. Do y'all remember which verses? Verses 16 and 17. And so if you're new this morning, feel no pressure, you can cheat look at the screen. But for the rest of you, don't look at the screen, look at my eyes. What does it say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Look at your neighbor and say, great job. Um, that That was terrific. It's been a few weeks and we got back on it. Great job. Um... What we've been saying through this series is truly the gospel is foundational for our life with God. There is no opportunity to have real relationship with God and real life apart from what God has done in Jesus Christ. The gospel is foundational. For you, it's an entry point. For you to come into relationship with God, you have to see your brokenness and need. You have to see God's love, his grace, his work for you in Christ. You have to turn from yourself and your sin and you have to turn toward Christ and you have to believe upon him and you have to surrender to him. The gospel is foundational for life. 
but the gospel is also transformational. Because yes, while it has an entry point, when we repent and believe, and some people here today, even today can be a day of salvation. You've not yet entered into real life with God. And I invite you, I exhort you, turn from self and sin and turn toward Christ and be saved. But it's not just about that entry point and then we just wait until we die to go to heaven. No, the wonderful thing about the, the, the work of God for us in Jesus Christ is that it's transformational. God puts his spirit in us, his presence again comes into our lives and he brings about an incredible metamorphosis of life from the inside out, change comes. He changes us from heart into every nook and cranny of our life and God is so loving and so gracious to bring both a foundational reality and a transformational reality into our life now and forever. Now, today we're going into a new section of the book, all right? So for those who like to be students of the Bible, I assume that's all of you, right? I wanna make sure you understand the structure of the way this book is written because the book is an incredibly organized uh, book. Chapters one through eight, which we just finished last week on Easter Sunday, speak to us about these incredible, wonderful gospel realities. The realities of what God has done for us, and that's one through five, and the realities of what God wants to do in us, that's chapters six through eight. But all that we have looked at up to this point speak to these wonderful gospel realities, these foundational realities that I just spoke to. Now what you need to know is where we're heading, if you look a few chapters ahead, starting in verse 12, verse one, what we're gonna get from chapter 12 through the end of the book are some wonderful gospel applications. The transformational stuff that we talked about just a second ago, the gospel is both foundational and transformational. Chapters 12 through 16 speak to us all about the wonderful transformation that God wants to bring in light of God's mercy. I implore you to present your bodies a living sacrifices and then he pours out for the rest of those chapters a myriad of practical applications for how the gospel changes everyday life, all right? But what we're about to get into today and over the next couple of weeks, I need you to know is sandwiched right in the middle. From chapters nine through 11, Paul kind of takes an aside. It's not like a, a rabbit trail that he's going down with no intentionality. It's, it's greatly intentional. But I don't want it to disrupt your understanding of this book. Because in chapters nine through 11, what Paul does is, is, is basically pause after speaking about the wonderful realities of the gospel. And he says, I want us together, essentially, to wonder, to wonder in God. And to wonder in how God saves. The reason that I am titling this middle section in that way is because if you go to, in your Bible to Romans chapter 11, I know I haven't given you the exact chapter we're gonna be in today. We're gonna to be in chapter nine today. But I want you to go to the very end of chapter 11 because if you can understand the last verses of chapter 11, then you can understand Paul's intention for these chapters and you can understand God's heart for you at the end of these chapters of study. Starting in verse 33 of chapter 11, Paul says, oh, 
the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So in other words, as we get to this new section of the book, where the landing point for this section, and it needs to inform how you view everything from chapters 9, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 11. The end goal of these chapters, which, to be honest, are some of the most complex and most debated chapters, definitely in all of Romans, perhaps in all of the Bible. But the end goal of them is not to lead you into debates. The end goal of it is to lead you into wonder and to worship. Sometimes I get concerned that we think, I mean, we have minds, and we love thinkers here at ICC. I'm a thinker. We as a church love thinkers. We, we believe God's given us a mind to understand the scripture, so we should ask big questions, but we also have to leave room for things that we cannot fully understand. We have to leave room for mystery. And that mystery, when our minds come to the end of what is comprehensible to us, it leads us, it should lead us to a place of surrender and of worship. And what Paul is trying to do in these chapters is to help us to wonder, to sense some of the complexity and the mystery of the person of God and of the purposes of God and the power of God and the way of God in his salvation. And to just come to a point where essentially we throw our hands up and go, God, you are bigger than me. You are wiser than me. You are stronger than me. And God, from you and through you and to you are all things. And to God, I'm going to live the rest of my life into all eternity going, God, you are wonderful. That is the point of these chapters. Now, sure, there's some meat in the chapters we need to understand. So, for instance, today in chapter 9, we're going to look at God's sovereignty. Now, if you were to only read chapter 9 and not continue forward, you would walk away perhaps thinking, wow, God is like so totally in charge, so sovereign in the ways that he saves that I don't really have a choice in anything. What am I here for? What am I to do with anything? But it's in this section not all about God's sovereignty, though it is. But in chapter 10, we see that it's also about our responsibility to respond to God in faith for what he's done. If you were to read chapter 10 alone and not have read chapter 9 or not have read chapter 11, you would perhaps walk away going, oh, salvation is all about what we do in response to God. It's all a choice that I can make. But again, chapter 10 is not in the Bible alone. 
And I think a lot of the confusion and a lot of the complexity that comes out of these chapters is people trying to go, well, it's only God's sovereignty or it's only our responsibility and failing to do what these chapters are meant to lead us to do, which I just read to you at the end of chapter 11, which is to get to a point where you can hold both his sovereignty and our responsibility at the same time and go, God, you are wonderful. Your ways are higher, your mind is greater, you are stronger. God, from you, through you, to you are all things. God, I don't understand it all, but God, I know I need you. And I'm so thankful you've given yourself to me. It's to lead us to, to worship and to wonder, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment, how inscrutable his ways. So even as I journey forward into these chapters, I do so not as an academic standing before you, though I study and study and study to be able to teach to you, but I stand before you as a pastor. I want you to comprehend things with your mind, but this morning I am asking, and I've been praying, that God would do something in your heart to lead you not just to be able to understand with your mind, but to be able to worship from your heart. That is the goal of these chapters, and that's my aim in being able to teach them to you today. So if it's okay, we're gonna start and finish chapter nine in one sermon, all right? We should be done by three o'clock. Hopefully y'all don't have anything to do. <laughs> it was a joke. First time people are like, oh wow, made a wrong choice today, baby. Um, no. We are gonna look today at chapter nine, not the whole of it, but the majority of it, verses one through 29 in a sermon that I'm calling Understanding God's Sovereignty, all right? So if you got something to write with, and I encourage you always to be a note taker if it works for you, I believe it's a helpful way for me. And we're gonna start today by reading the fullness of the text, and then we'll go back and walk through it together. I got a lot of ground to cover, and so I would appreciate it if you bring the fullness of your mind and heart uh, into every moment of today's message so that we can really make the most of our time together. Starting in verse one. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but are the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he said in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is God's word. Anybody ever read this passage of scripture before? Anybody ever found it very difficult and confusing? Okay, so yes. This morning, I hope to be able to bring some clarity to you around this passage, but I need to say from the onset that there's no way in the time that I have that I could be exhaustive uh, in all that I teach. And I just pray, I pray that you've got people around you to continue to study the word of God with, that you know that we as your pastors love you and welcome you to continue conversation with you. Um, and I just pray in some way this is helpful on your journey to better understanding of God's word. What I wanna point your attention to first is the key question of this text, okay? There is a singular question that emerges from this text that really 
the majority of chapter nine is written to answer. Did you identify it as we went through it? It's found in verse six. And the key question is this, has God's word failed? All right, let's look at verse six, A. Paul says, but it is not as though, what? The word of God has failed. So, what you know is that right out the gate, the intention of this text is to answer the question that could emerge in your mind, has God's word failed? Another way to ask the same question, and every one of you who's a thinker today, who's a believer today, should be wrestling with this question. Is God's word reliable? If you're gonna put your hope in God, you're gonna put your hope in his word, your hope in Christ, then you need to know the answer to this question. How's God's word failed and is God's word trustworthy? Is it reliable? Now, you might go, wait, how did, like, how did we get, wait a second, didn't we just finish chapter eight and these wonderful gospel realities? Like, how are we go from there? This feels like whiplash. How do we go from out of eight into the start of nine? And why is this question even the question of this text? What, where did this come from? And the reason for the question is this, the unbelief of the Jewish people. The unbelief of the Jewish people. The memory verse that we've been reciting week after week Verse 16 of chapter one. One part of it we haven't gotten to, to, to yet in Paul's thesis. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To who? To the Jew first. And then to the Greek, to the Gentile. And as you hear this thesis, this truth from God, that the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe for the Jew first. And then you start looking around. Paul starts looking around. And he starts realizing how few of the Jewish people actually have experienced this power of God. How few of the Jewish people have actually believed upon Christ. And it's not just true in Paul's day, it's true even today. The vast majority of ethnic Jewish people have not believed. And the obvious question comes, has God's word failed because of this unbelief? Well, Paul, of all people, feels the most distressed about this. And if you look at the first verses of chapter nine, Romans chapter nine, verses one to three, Paul begins to name his distress. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears with me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great, what? Sorrow. 
and unceasing what? Anguish in my heart. How great is your sorrow, Paul? How unceasing is your anguish? He answers it in verse three. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, of course, Paul knows, based on the other teachings of this book and his other writings, that he cannot cut himself off from Christ. Christ has redeemed him. Christ has him. He has assurance of Christ's love that can never separate him. Nothing will ever separate him from the love of Christ. He's just proclaimed this out of the end of chapter 8. But what he's saying is he longs so much for their salvation that he's saying, I would trade places with them. There's sometimes, you guys ever been to um, like a really great party or concert or event and then you, you realize that somebody that you love is not with you and you go, oh man, I wish, you name their name, we're here to see this. Y'all ever been there? Paul, in a similar way, has just gotten done just rejoicing in Jesus Christ. I mean, the climax of his rejoicing comes at the end of chapter eight. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And you can almost picture him down on his knees in worship, with tears coming out of his eyes. He's overwhelmed at the experience of the love of Christ. And then his heart feels a burden because he wishes that others could be with him to experience it. This goes to some of the missional heart of this book. God wants for you to have a heart for those who have not yet experienced the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think of evangelism as if it's a project or a program, but no, it's not. It's a work of love. God has called us to so love others as we love ourselves, to want for them what we have experienced in the goodness and grace of Christ. Some of you have people in your life that do not know Christ, and I wonder, do you love them to this degree? The great sorrow, the unceasing anguish in your heart, wishing that you could trade places with them. I know some of you do. Some of us have, maybe all of us, have room to grow and developing more of a heart of concern for those who do not have Jesus Christ. That is something God wants to develop in you, to love others to that extent, and to pray for them. But Paul is saying, I've got this heart of concern for them, and I'm dismayed. Secondly, not only is he distressed over them, but he's dismayed, because here these people are, the, the ethnic Jewish people, and historically, let's look at verses four and five. They have had every opportunity and reason to be able to believe. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, who is blessed forever. I just made a list, that's all I did. Some of y'all are like, whoa, he just put up a lot of content. All this is is those verses in a list, okay? 
You can do the same thing, all right? This is what good Bible studying looks like. He's, he's saying, I, I can't believe it. I mean, they were made a special nation. The whole reason they're called Israelites, that's where I'm getting that part, they're Israelites. They were made out of Israel, the man, Israel. They were developed into a people, a nation. They had such a special place in redemptive history. They were adopted, a national adoption. Not adoption kind of like salvation, but in Exodus 4, he talks about how he adopted them as a people, like as a nation. These are the people who had the Shekinah glory of God. God's glory was revealed to them. These are the people who God gave his law to first. They had the privilege of the tabernacle and the temple of having in their midst the, the very, a place where people were drawn to worship the true and living God. These are the people who had been given God's promises. They had people showing up, prophets, who were speaking the word of God and the promises of God. These are people who had dis ancestors who were godly, who were people of, of faith, the patriarchs in the verse. And these are the people from whom Christ, Jesus Christ was born as a Jewish man to Jewish parents. It was through this people that came the Messiah. And Paul's going, yet they, they don't believe. You can be around the things of God and not have relationship with God. Judas heard every sermon that Christ preached and yet his heart remained unchanged. The Jewish people had all of these privileges and all of these benefits, and yet their hearts remained unchanged. In fact, we read in John chapter one, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Be careful, friends, because there are many of us who are around the things of God, but being around the things of God, sitting in a church this morning, doesn't make you right with God. The only thing that makes you right with God is a right heart before God. The Jewish people, though, Paul was distressed over them and he was dismayed over them. How could they not receive him? And it leads us back to the key question. Has then God's word failed? Has it failed? But the answer to the question is also clear, <laughs> right? And he's gonna prove it to us. We're about to get very logical because I'm gonna walk you through his four proofs to this answer. No, it hasn't failed. In fact, the answer to the question comes right out of verse six, but it is what? It is not as though the word of God has failed. So that's the answer. God's word has not failed. That's the thesis of these, this section, chapter nine. Now, there's four reasons that we know that God's word has not failed, but before I give you the four reasons, I give you our main point because I've been doing this week after week. The main point this morning, and we'll look at his four reasons after it, is God's word is reliable. God wants you to know you can trust him. And in this passage, he wants you to know that he is sovereign over salvation and he is faithful. He is faithful to fulfill his promise of mercy to those who are in Christ. 
God is sovereign over salvation. His word has not failed. No, 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 don't go thinking that. Just as you look at the unbelief of the Jewish people, it is not as if God's word has failed. Something else is going on. God is still sovereign and he is still saving. He is faithful to fulfill promise to mercy to those who are in Christ. You can know that you can know this, all right? I wanna show you today four, the four main proofs that Paul gives. As many, 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 many have, who have gone before me have done, these are the main points that emerge out of the text. And I have been greatly helped as I have studied this text over the last 15 years of my life. I have taught this text numerous times here at our church. Um, I have been greatly helped by, by many. For this sermon, for the first time in this series, what I have chosen to do is simply to embrace, to stay out of controversy altogether, and to embrace an outline that many, many before have used. So the, four, the explanations will come from, from me and from my heart. But the points I'm gonna give you um, are today uh, being given to you from me as a direct copy of a work that David Platt and Tony Morita put together in a commentary series of exalting Christ in the book of Romans. So I'm gonna give you these four things just as they outline them in the book, these four main points so that you can understand that what we're teaching here at ICC is, is not new. It's a faithful representation of the scripture. And these four things emerge straight out of the text. Many before even David and Tony uh, presented this in this most recent commentary series, they have used, many have used these in just different language, okay? So the four truths today I wanna present to you are this. Number one, has God's word failed? No. And reason number one is this, God is working out his sovereign purposes in history. God is working out his sovereign purposes in history. And from this, we look at verses 6 to 13. I'm going to walk you through these verses as best I can, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be marking the screen, but I don't have any other subpoints for you other than these four main points. But I think that many of us have opportunity to write things down even though it's not on the screen. I know that's challenging sometimes to write things down that are not on the screen, but I would encourage you to think about it if you're interested. He says in verse six, but it is not as though God's word is failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all who are children of Abraham because there is offspring but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not of the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay. He's saying that there is a difference. Do you see this? From Israel belong to Israel. There's, a, there's an Israel that exists in the flesh and then there's an Israel, a true Israel, that exists by faith. Look at verse eight. The comparison here, children of the what? Flesh, and then children of what? God. So what Paul is saying is, God never promised that all of Israel, in other words, the descendants of the flesh Israel, would be saved. That's not what God promised. 
Rather, God promised that those who shared the faith of Abraham and others who were like Abraham, who had hearts of faith and trust in God and his salvation, it's those who God made the promise to. Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. In other words, it's just like today, just because your mom and dad were Christians doesn't mean that you automatically are a Christian. You have to share faith in Christ. A true Christian is one of heart, not ancestry. Salvation doesn't come through genetics. Salvation comes by a gift of grace received in a heart of faith. So what he's saying here is God's word didn't fail because God's promise was never made to the flesh Israel, to birth Israel. God's always promise was always made to faith Israel, true Israel. Therefore, you can know that when you see anyone among the Jewish people, including this person, Paul, who's writing this book, if there's anyone who shares the faith, has the heart toward Christ, faith, then God's word has not failed because truly there are some who have faith that are saved. Do you see? Now to prove this, Paul gives some illustrations. And he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. And then he says in verse nine, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, what do you know about Abraham? How many sons did he have? He had, how many? He had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I got you. He had two sons, all right? That was mean and fun. Um, He had Ishmael first. Do you remember? And then he had Isaac. Now, what Paul's pointing your attention to is God's covenant, though, was established through Isaac and not Ishmael. God had given a promise that Abraham and Sarah would have children, Genesis 15. But then Abraham decided to take it to his own hands. He ended up having a relationship with Hagar, who was a worker in their house. Abraham thought he himself would try to make the offspring, the promise, come true. However, it didn't work. Because Genesis chapter 17, verse 19 states, Abraham's barren wife will have a son, and God will establish promise with him. So the quote here is from Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, where God is saying, no, it's going to happen through Sarah. Why is Paul giving this as an illustration? Because he's saying here, here's the point, all right? Again, this would be a moment that you might consider writing something down that I haven't put on the screen. That God's salvation will come as a miracle of grace and not as a work of human achievement. He's saying God's promise has not failed because God was never saving through the flesh. He was never saving as a as a gift because of something that someone has done, someone has achieved. He was always saving on the basis of grace, on the basis of something that only God would do by God's choosing and by God's grace. That's example number one. Now, example number two 
comes, here comes, starting in verse 10, is Jacob and Esau. And not only so, verse 10, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, and as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, and we go back to verse 10 and 11. Because the example comes now when we're thinking about Isaac and Rebekah, they have children. But Paul's emphasis here in verse 11 tells us why he's giving us this example. Though they were not yet born, and they had done nothing either good nor bad. Because you might be tempted to think in the last illustration, well, maybe then it was because Ishmael was not born to a Jew. He was born to an Egyptian, Hagar. And maybe it was because Ishmael in his heart hated and because there was evil in Ishmael's heart that that's why God did what he did. And Paul steps onto the scene with this illustration and basically blows that up. And he says, yo, yo, yo. Um, It's, (laughs) I think Paul would have said yo if he was living in 2023. It's not, has nothing to do with descent. Because Jacob and Esau had the same mom and she was Jewish. And it has nothing to do with deeds. Because this happened before they were born. They had done nothing, either good nor bad. So then, what in the world? How then do you get to a point where you have one who is made right with God over the other. And by the way, don't get too tripped up over verse 13. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Hated here, remember when Jesus says, anyone who does not hate their father, mother, brother, and sisters cannot. It's, it's an issue of preference. He's showing preference. He's saying here, you've got, we all know the story, and if you don't know the story, you've got one, you've got two twins, same mom, and one preferred over the other. In other words, one saved over the other. What is the point of this illustration? He's going, don't you, don't you think that it's about descent? And don't you think that it's about deeds? God doesn't save on the basis of your ancestry. God does not save on the basis of your works. God saves on the basis of his grace. God saves on the basis of grace. And therefore, you can know that God's word has not failed. Because if you look at the flesh, you might go, wow, like God promised to Israel that they'd all be saved. And, and look at here, Ishmael's not saved. Look at here, Esau. He's going, no, you're looking at the wrong things. Look at the heart. Because what you want to look for is God's powerful, miraculous working in the heart. You want to look for grace and the response of faith. And if you look at all who have trusted him, they have all been saved by grace. All who have trusted him 
have been saved. Therefore, it's not as if God's word has failed. So number one, reason number one, God's word has not failed because God is working out his sovereign purposes in history. And all of it is on the basis of his grace. Number two. Oh, by the way, before we go to number two, I'm glad, see, this is why I put slides in to actually help me. You can trust him. This is where this exercise this morning is not just one of the head, it's also the heart. God wants you to be able to trust him. All who come to him by faith are saved. History proves it out. He is working out his sovereign salvation by grace to all who respond to him by faith. And you can know that you know that you know he is trustworthy. When you yield your heart to him, when you come to him, not on the basis of, well, my mom or my dad, or I was a member of this church, or I was baptized at this date, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. On the basis of God, I yield my heart to you. I trust in you. You are my only hope. I love you. Thank you for your love for me. When you yield your heart to God, you can know that you know that you know he will save you. His word has not failed and will not fail. Number two. God's word has not failed, and here's the second reason, because God's ways are just and his salvation is merciful. God's ways are just and his salvation is merciful. So there's an obvious question that comes up, and you see it here at the start of verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, it's, it's an obvious thing for us to get to a point like this in our shallow understanding with these things hard to grasp and, and you hear about brothers, Ishmael and Isaac or Jacob and Esau and you see some saved and others not and you go, wait a second here. That don't feel fair. Anybody ever wrestled with that question before? How is one experiencing this and the other not? Why is it that within the same family, and maybe it's even your own story, you see such merciful working of God and also what seems like such difficult consequence of rebellion, which seems like injustice from our lens of things. And Paul, he puts this question in your mouth because he knows that you probably wrestle this question. What should we say? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul answers for us by no means, and he's going to explain it. For verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, I'm gonna go back to verse 15 because this is a quote from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. What's so interesting is what Paul is saying is, God always does what is right. God is sovereign, he is free, but there is no injustice with God. 
In fact, God always, always, always does what is right. And what's so interesting here is he's saying, God and his sovereignty, God and his freedom has used his freedom in a certain way to show mercy and to show compassion. In other words, to give grace. But here's where I need you for a second to pay attention, because what Paul is imploring you to do is to get out of your Western 2023 thinking of what is fair for God to do. He is asking you to change your perspective on fairness. He's asking you to change your perspective on justice. What would be fair Let's think about it from the study that we've had so far in Romans. Go back to chapter one, for the wrath of God is revealed against sin and all unrighteousness. Go back to chapter three, for no one is righteous, no, not one, and answer the question for me, what would be fair? What would be fair for you? You want God to be fair over your life, really? Because the Bible is clear what would be fair is for us to be separated from him. For us to have his wrath poured out on us, for condemnation to come to us because all of us have rejected him, have rebelled against him. That would be fair for us to get what we deserve. So here's the flip. Are you ready? John Stott says it best. I'll just quote from him. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder is that anybody is saved at all. Let me say it again. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder is that any of us are saved at all. In other words, there should be an amazement. Not that some are condemned, no. We should not be amazed at that. That, that. that should be obvious to us because we know we deserve that because of our own choices to walk away from God. Like It is not amazing that a righteous king would rule justly against injustice and we committed injustice against him. That a holy God would push out sin. That should not be amazing. Rather, what should be amazing is that any of us, that any of us would be recipients of mercy and compassion. We deserve nothing but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, God is not unjust. If anybody's lost, it's because of themselves. But if anybody is saved, it is because of God. Do you see? He's asking us to change our perspective. And he says here about Pharaoh, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my my name might be proclaimed in the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. What he's saying is salvation 
is not about anything that humans bring to the table, but it's all about God. And it's all about God's mercy. And by the way, man, I wish I had more time to do this, but if we went back to the Exodus account, which may be a book that we study in the future as a church, but if we went back to the Exodus account, over and over and over, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before it ever says anything about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And the truth of it is that when God hardens somebody, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go their own way. God hardens those who he wants to harden and all whom he hardens want to be hardened. C.S. Lewis quote, hell is locked first from the inside. God's ways are just. And his salvation is merciful. The late D. James Kennedy, who is a Presbyterian, we're sitting in a Baptist church, please don't hold this against us. I happen to love Presbyterians, I love Baptists, I love Methodists, we're not denominationalists here, you don't really ever talk, we don't talk about denominations, we talk about Jesus. So don't let denominations stand in the way. It's just a means of cooperation. He gives this quote and he says, and it's helpful to this point, and then I'll move on, because I know, I know we gotta move on. But he says, say you have five people planning to hold up a bank, and they're all friends of mine. Well, I find out about it and I plead with them, please don't do it, I beg them. But finally, they push me out of the way and they head out. I tackle one of the men and I wrestle him to the ground, my friend. But the others get out. They go ahead, they rob the bank, and in the process, kill a guard and two civilians. They're captured, they're convicted, they're sentenced to life in prison. The one who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask this question, James Kennedy says, whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame anyone but themselves? And this other man who's walking free, can he say, because my heart is good, so good, I resisted temptation, that's why I'm free. No, the only reason that he's free is because of me. I restrained him. So it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves, and those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus, we see salvation is all grace from beginning to end. Amen? Number three, God's word has not failed. And by the way, before I go to the number three, I pause at number two and I say, have you taken time lately to be grateful for God's mercy over your life? Do you know where you would be apart from God's restraining mercy? What would be fair for you is for you to be lost, separated from God, destined for an eternity apart from him, Let's get the definition of fairness correct. That would be fair. What is merciful, though, is that he has provided a way of salvation for Jesus Christ, that he has given life in your death, light in your darkness, hope in your hopelessness. Amen? Aren't you grateful? Can we all be more grateful for the mercy of God? Number three. I'll cover these 
in a way that I hope will help you understand them. Number three, God has the right of a potter over his clay. God has the right of a potter over his clay. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God is so sovereign and God is so free and God is showing mercy and we have mercy, compassion, we have compassion, why then does he still find fault with those who don't experience that? But verse 20, Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, you better shut your trap, boy. I'm quoting a Georgia quote from my grandmother, okay? You better watch who you're talking to. Anybody ever said that as a parent or heard that from a parent? or a superior, or a teacher, someone in authority? Who do, you think you're, who do you think you're talking to? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, be careful about arguing about God. God's not opposed to questions, friends. He's not opposed to questions, but we gotta be humble about it, and we need to be rebuked when it's our pride that is spitting back at God. Be careful about prideful accusations toward God. And then he says in verse 21, he puts us in our place. Has the potter no right over his clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And so the analogy is a potter and a clay. You go to Bell Tower or some other places in Memphis and you can see the folks. I love pottery. Do anybody else love pottery? I love that. I, I love coffee mugs. Michelle's told me if I buy one more coffee mug, we're gonna have serious issues in our marriage. So I keep bringing old coffee mugs to church when I want to buy a new one. So back in the back, there's a whole collection of the extra mugs that we can't put in our cabinet. I love the pottery mugs that where you can see the human etchings in it. You, you think about a clay in the hands of a potter. It's an Old Testament uh, illustration many times over. Paul uses it twice here in Timothy. And you think about that. And, he, and he's going, how silly would it be for the clay sitting there to, to be frustrated with how the potter is, is making it? The, the clay doesn't make demands of the potter. The potter is free. The potter is sovereign and the potter is good. He can do what he wants to do. We don't get to make the rules. Now this is a teaching of the Bible's authority. A couple of references to write down and then I'll move on to the last point. Psalm 115 verse three. We don't like, we don't like this. In our human nature, we don't like to wrestle with the reality that God has total authority over us. He is free to do as he pleases. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that, is, that he pleases. Psalm 135, here's another reference. Psalm 135, verses five and six. For I know the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever he pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and seas and all the deeps, Daniel chapter four, verse 34, 35, Nebuchadnezzar, after his great humiliation, made a confession, I know now to bless the most high who's praised and honored who lives forever for his dominion is everlasting. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, going, I got power, but I ain't got no power compared to God. In fact, his power is above my power. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does, verse 35, according to his will among the host of heaven. No one can say to him, what have you done? Job wrestles with a similar question. Isaiah chapter 46, verses eight through 10. God says to us, my counsel shall stand 
and I will accomplish all my purpose. Some of us go, ooh, I don't know if I want to believe in a God like that. Tim Keller gives the most helpful illustration. You ever seen the movie Stepford Wives? Anybody? This is an odd time for a Stepford Wives illustration, doesn't it seem? The point of the movie is there's a community of people and the men decide to do away with their wives. And they decide to replace their wives with exact look-alike robots of wives. And these robots never argue. These robots never contradict the men. These robots never do anything exactly, except exactly what the husbands want them to do. I'm not advocating for this movie. I'm just telling you what it's about. Some of the women in the room are going, oh, heck no. But Tim Keller says, a lot of people want to step for God. God will never contradict. God will never overrule. A God who will never oppose. A never, God who would never do anything except exactly what I want him to do. But the problem is, if that is your God, then you don't have relationship with a real God at all. You have relationship with yourself. You have made God in your image. If God cannot correct you or be free from you or assert his rights over you, you don't want the real God. Because the real God has authority, the real God has sovereignty, and the real God has freedom, and the real God has power. God is God, and you are not him. And many of us, I don't say that, I say that lovingly and compassionately, but we need, I really believe, as we consider this point, humility. We need, as a church family, you need in your life more humility before God. Rather than talking back to him, like Job in chapter 42, learn to put your hand over your mouth and bow humbly before him. Number four, and this is the last point, I close. Has God's word failed? The answer is no. We've seen three reasons so far, but the fourth one, we'll get to more in chapter 11, explanation of it, but God's promises always included many Gentiles and a Jewish remnant. God's promises always included many Gentiles and a Jewish remnant. Verse 24, Paul says, even us, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Emphasis here, also from the Gentiles. In other words, don't you see from the beginning it's also included them as indeed he said in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. He's quoting from the Old Testament to basically say, hey, look, like even before the time of Christ, Hosea, these quotes are from Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. He's saying even before Christ, God was telling us as a Jewish people that there were going to be people included in our midst who were not of us. He's using the situation that was happening here in Hosea to make a parallel 
The promise at this time was about, it was directed to the northern kingdom of Israel, but Paul's applying it, rightfully so, to Gentile believers. He's saying outsiders will become insiders. Those who are strangers will become family. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 1, 2 to 15, and Isaiah chapter 10, 1 to 4. And he says, Isaiah also cries out that the number of the sons of Israel will be a sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved. But the point here is that a remnant of them will be saved. God had always promised the inclusion of outsiders, but also that there would be insiders who would also have faith and be saved too, for the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord's host had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, he's saying God does preserve a remnant. So you can know that you know God has not failed because from the beginning, God's promise included this reality. See, God is a God who reverses things all the time. And those who think they have the rights and privileges, God humbles them. And those who feel the most undeserving, God exalts them. God is a God of grace. And he's looking for those who are humble in heart, who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this from the beginning, it should lead us to have confidence. To have confidence that God's promise holds fast. I close today by putting back up our main point God's word is reliable. And God wants you to know that He is sovereign. He is sovereign over salvation, but He is also faithful to fulfill his promise of mercy to those who are in Christ. And today we have looked at the answers to the question, has God's word failed? And the resounding answer is no, because we know that God is working out his sovereign purposes in history, and therefore we need to trust him. We know that God's ways are just and his salvation is merciful, and therefore we need to be grateful before him. We know that God has the right of a potter over his clay and therefore we need to be humble in his presence. And we know that God's promise has always included many Gentiles in a Jewish remnant and therefore we need to have confidence in his word and salvation. As we close today, I want to plea for your heart. I said at the beginning, the point of all of this is not to get into an academic, intellectual, theological debate. The point of all of this is to lead you deeper into worship. And right now as we close, I want to invite you to worship God for his mercy. At our wedding, 13 years ago this June, I love you, Michelle. I stood like a nervous little boy in the back room with the preacher man. Some of y'all stay with me like this now and I get to watch you squirm, it's awesome. Waiting to come out into the sanctuary. We had chosen on that day of our marriage for the processional, for me to come out and then Michelle to walk down the aisle to a very specific song that had been an anthem of our relationship and our life up to that point. The lyrics of the song still hang in our bedroom today. It's a song written by Sandra McCracken, entitled, Thy Mercy, My God. 
And the lyrics of the song say, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affection and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness, my spirits revive, and he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of this mercy I found. Great Father of mercies, thy goodness I own and the covenant love of thy crucified Son. All praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. I pray today that the song of your heart would be the mercy of our God. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for your mercy poured out. And I pray, God, that as we wonder at your salvation, that we would be led to deeper trust, deeper gratitude, deeper humility, and deeper confidence in you. If there's any here today that need to be right with God in some way, you can come to the altar, you can come and talk to us if you want to make a decision for Christ, if you need just to surrender, if you need to pray, if you need to humble yourself before the Lord, and that looks like physical motion, if there's something you need to move on, just do that today. Move toward Christ, he's present, he loves you, he's for you. So as we respond today, just let the mercy of God be the theme of your song. This is a time of worship for you to say thank you. Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.